This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So safe to say the ties between the U.S. and China, they are at their lowest point in decades. And as our Sean Donnan writes, uh, kind of worsening by the day, Paul, not getting any easier. Exactly. It just seems a back and forth, back and forth between the two countries and actually the two leaders in, in some sense. Yeah, exactly. Sean, of course, is senior trade reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us from our bureau in the nation's capital. Uh, Sean, so day two, I feel like we've all calmed down a little bit, but I don't know that anything's really changed between the United States and China. Um, where are we? Anything new? anything has moved in the last 24 hours yeah i guess the the good news is things haven't gotten any worse (laughs) the bad news is they haven't gotten any better markets seem to be encouraged by the fact that uh they haven't gotten any worse we've seen the chinese kind of offer maybe a little bit of an olive branch overnight by setting the uh the kind of yuan exchange rate at a back below the seven uh, line that they crossed yesterday provocatively, which prompted the Trump administration to finally go ahead and label China a currency manipulator. But we're kind of all sitting here. I'm furiously hitting the phones trying to figure out what the next step is. And to be honest, I'm not getting many answers right now. We're in a kind of hold pattern today. So, Sean, one of the things I kind of didn't focus on yesterday when we were focusing so much on the yuan was kind of Huawei. Um, Can you give us the latest on how that's factoring into uh, the discussions between the two countries? Yeah, so that's really interesting. That's one of the lines we're chasing here in, 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 in Washington. If you remember back to the G20 and this kind of tentative truce that was announced by President Trump and Xi Jinping out of China, um, it, the, the basic deal there to be kind of crude was that the Trump administration would allow some sales of components to Huawei again, uh, some non-national security threatening components. That pleased a lot of U.S. Uh, chip makers and others who supply. Huawei and the bargain uh, in return, at least as Donald Trump presented it, was that the Chinese would resume agricultural purchases. The Chinese, to his mind, never met their end of that bargain, which is why he announced the tariffs last week that kind of led to this latest escalation. But we haven't heard anything on Huawei. And in talking with folks inside the White House, they insist that uh, things are still going ahead uh, with some uh, limited export license issuances. Uh, But, you know, we're hearing mixed uh, messages on that. We really don't know. But that is something we should definitely, you know, we're definitely trying to figure out. I'm listening to you talk and I'm just thinking, okay, so China's thinking about its technology firms in Huawei, which is the future. And we're worried about farm exports. Soybeans. Soybeans, (laughs) right? Like, I just think that in so many ways shows how we have not really figured out what the right trade negotiation should be. I mean, I feel like we're way off course. Is that fair, Sean? Well, look, I, I I think there's an element of that, right? And the Trump administration, if Bob Lighthizer was here, would would tell you you're totally wrong, Carol. Of course, <laughs> uh, he would insist that this trade fight really is about the future of America because it's about protecting intellectual property, getting China to change its intellectual property practices. That means uh, kind of protecting the the brain driven industries in America. But it's clear that uh, China has been very effective in getting at an American nerve 
by uh, retaliating against farmers. And that's the leverage that they hold uh, over the United States. Well, that's a political leverage, right, yeah, over political leverage, Trump. But, but you know what? Trade is, and, uh, trade is the marriage of economics and politics in a lot of ways. Trade negotiations are, certainly. And, that is, um, and that's what we're seeing. So, Sean, one of the things I'm, I think I'm learning as I spend more and more time with it, reading about this issue is that an argument can be made that neither President Trump nor President Xi has any domestic incentive to reach a compromise. And that's kind of a bearish thought right there. What do, what do you think? No, I think that's absolutely right. I think uh, if you look at President Trump's situation right now, the, the real big question hanging over him and his China policy is whether it is more politically advantageous for him going into the 2020 election to cut a deal with China or to be tough on China. And I think there's an element of him wanting to have it both ways. Uh, likewise, China is, is a different kettle of fish because Xi Jinping doesn't have an election coming coming up. But, you know, he's sitting in uh, uh, together with uh, his Politburo this week. They're uh, doing their annual beach retreat, uh, talking about policy. And he needs to keep the people in that room happy and Everybody's convinced that he's right now. Well, right? <laughs> I'm not time? at the beach. Are you there? <laughs> no. uh, the, um, uh, if the trade wars stop, I can go to the beach. But the um, look, the uh, he's got his own domestic constituencies. And, and, yeah. and at the same time, you know, you look at the economies on both sides. You know, President Trump says the, Ch- the Chinese economy is crumbling. Well, it's still growing six something percent. Uh, likewise, you look at the U.S. economy. It's been hit a little bit by the trade wars, but it's still growing two percent. Where is the rest of the world on uh, the U.S.-China trade spat? Bemused. I think that's the kind of the common theme we hear from from the rest of the world. And that's a big risk for, mm. for the Trump administration. Uh, a lot of people think that the better way to approach this would have been to go into this fight with allies on all sides um, and uh, or, or all around you. And uh, the, the Trump administration seems to have managed to annoy a lot of allies rather than kind of mobilize them for the same fight. So they're watching from the sidelines and trying to figure out where these two uh, big economies go. That's important for the rest of the world. But right now, everyone's scratching their head. So, Sean, just in the next 20 seconds, just what do you think outside of a, a random tweet here or there? Is there the next milestone we should be looking at? Is there a date? Well, the big question is early September. Uh, are we going to see these talks and are those going to be meaningful? Right now, there's a big question over whether or not we're going to have another round of talks. And there's an even bigger question over whether they'll be meaningful. All right. Going to leave it there. Certainly setting up to be a very, very busy fall. That's going to keep us all on our toes. Uh, Sean, thank you so much. I always appreciate your insight. Sean Donnan, he is senior trade reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us from our bureau in the nation. And he's not capital. going to the beach anytime soon, it doesn't appear like. <laughs> I got there last week. You're going to get there next week, but yep. really, really sorry, Sean. Sean. This is the end. Wow. That's harsh, Mark. Mark Zinskalchi, our producer. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Well, Barney's New York filed for bankruptcy protection from creditors and laid out plans to shutter most of its stores after getting squeezed by rising rents and fewer visitors to its luxury fashion boutiques to get the latest. At least it's not blaming the weather. At least it's not, which is every retail earnings call forever, I think. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Coy Noakes is a partner, OC&C Strategy Consultants, joins us on the phone to give us a sense of what's going on here. So, Coy, thanks so much for joining us. I wonder if you could just kind of give us kind of the backdrop for what happened uh, at a great franchise name, that being Barney's. 
Sure, of course. Um, so I, I, two things, really. One thing is, you know, anyone who's shopped at Barney's knows their business model has always been about finding new up-and-coming designers, um, and it's always been a pretty coveted place um, for, you know, a, a distribution if you're a new designer. And, and that is really being challenged by direct-to-consumer and, you know, e-commerce players like Net-A-Porter, but also the brands going direct themselves. Um, combine that with their retail footprint and the fact that, you know, they really had expanded, you know, quite dramatically, you know, even though a third of their sales come from their Manhattan store, they had 22 stores. Um, And a lot of those were actually, you know, if we go back, were Barney's co-op stores that were meant to be more of a diffusion line kind of retailer um, in slightly different locations. And those locations have been converted to Barney's main stores. and, And they're just probably not the locations you would choose if you were setting up a retail footprint today. It's great to have you back with us. You know, and I think what's interesting is I think we thought luxury to some extent was immune from some of the, you know, retail fallout. And I think, you know, by seeing Barney's, you realize that's not the case. I do wonder when you look at the retail landscape, um, you know, are we going to see, is there still more retail uh, excess, if you will, to be kind of pulled out of the system? Mm-hmm. You know, we are spending a lot of time talking to our clients right now about the consumer journey. And that is really what's fundamentally changing the landscape at the moment. And, you know, the, the, the idea that a, retail, you know, a consumer used to go into a store, they'd browse, they'd shop, they'd purchase. Now, you don't know. They could be getting inspiration off of Instagram. They could be purchasing. They could go through their entire journey and never leave social media. Or they could go into the store. They could price check somewhere else. So the fact that the journey has evolved so much, I think, will continue to impact retailers. And luxury is not immune. I think, you know, for the most part, they have the opportunity now because the in-store experience is important. But you really have to think about what you're offering. And in the case of Barney's, they need to really think about what that experience is like for their consumers and, you know, and what they really want to have in-store when they go. So, Coy, just give us a sense of how this whole online shopping environment uh, works for the luxury, the high end of the market. It seems like it wouldn't be as relevant. It seems like if you have a strong high end brand, uh, that could cut through some of the risk associated with everything just kind of going online. Yes, I, I think that's right. I mean, it's, it's, it is more difficult to deliver a luxury experience online. And, and historically, authenticity has been a bit of a problem. Um, people not necessarily trusting e-commerce, but I think that has been overcome by some of the major, you know, kind of e-commerce retailers. Um, and they really are, you know, what, what a lot of luxury is about is the experience and the service. And really, you're getting an excellent product, but you're also getting, you know, in some cases of some of the luxury retailers, you know, they're able from an e-commerce perspective, they're still able to offer you same-day delivery um, or, you know, pick up and return. If you think about some of the things that you expect from a luxury, you know, retailer, they're able to overcome those things sometimes now in e-commerce, and that is really changing the game a bit. It's still, I still think that the in-store experience for a luxury yeah. is, is will remain more important, but... I do wonder, just looking at our notes, you know, one of the things I think you pointed Mm -hmm. out or we're thinking about is is the rise of luxury among uh, the Chinese. And I do wonder, you know, how Mm -hmm. important of a market, I would assume it's a pretty important market to capture if you Mm -hmm. are uh, particularly a retailer, but especially a luxury retailer. You know, for the brands, Chinese shoppers anywhere in the world account for about a third of their sales. 
So if you are one of the big major luxury brands, the Chinese shopper is very important. And I think thinking about, you know, and, and they are, you know, there are, they are, do favor certain brands. Um, if you think about in Barney's case, these sort of the up and coming brands may not appeal quite as much. They don't have quite the international brand um, as a retailer of some of the other um, you know, kind of multi-brand luxury retailers. So we think you really have to be thinking about, you know, the role of that consumer. It is projected to be about half of all luxury sales in about five years. So it's important to think about it now and to think about how, you know, you can appeal to that demographic. Koi Noakes, thank you so much for joining us. Koi is a partner at OCNC Strategy Consultants is joining us on the phone to talk about Barney's. And uh, it just goes just another story about how difficult bricks-and-mortar retail is. It, it kind of affects, obviously, all parts of the retail chain. Yeah, and I do think about, you know, there are brands out there that you thought would never be impacted by yep. some of the retail fallout. And this is a much smaller player than some of the larger department stores that are out there that really got overstored. But I think even to this extent, you know, maybe some of the stores became too big, too much. Uh, to handle. And yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I've heard reports that still the U.S. is still overstored in general by about 50%, as much as 50%. So you could argue that there's still more pain for some of the uh, retailers, particularly the apparel re- retailers. So check your calendars, right? We know the smartphone. It's been around for a while. Android, the mobile operating system created by Google, now a decade or so in existence. And no doubt about it, Android has had an enormous impact on our world. So now what? Bloomberg Opinion Technology columnist Shira Ovaday, she writes about it this week at the technology section of the magazine, her story on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. She joins us from our 960 studio in San Francisco, along with Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. You know, it's so funny. I was like, wow, 10 years. That seems like a long time and then not necessarily a long time. Shira, Android huge impact on smartphones. It really has. And I think it's been somewhat overshadowed by the attention on the iPhone. And, you know, to Apple's credit, it really did invent the kind of modern smartphone as we know it. But it really took Android and this kind of unusual coalition around Android to make the smartphone this ubiquitous computing device in a way that we really haven't seen before in the PC era or before. So and, and Shira, t- tied to that though, you know, Apple sort of paved the way, and what has contributed to Android's success? Well, you know, it, it takes a village, as they say, right, to to make a globally ubiquitous computing device. But the the I highlight three factors in my piece, which are obviously Google, which both bought the startup called Android and then turned it into this kind of sprawling, universally available foundational software for smartphones, as well as Samsung, which kind of took the smartphone to the next level in in handset design, made an Android smartphone at every conceivable price point and every conceivable feature, pushed it in every country around the world and became the top seller of smartphones in the world. And then China, this kind of government-led economic and technology transformation in that country in the last decade or so that really it meant pushing fast wireless internet to every corner of China and also this homegrown, nurtured this homegrown smartphone handset industry where you had companies like Xiaomi and Huawei and others take the foundational software of Android, tinker with it, kind of cast Google uh, aside and make a Chinese flavor of Android um, 
to build those companies like Huawei and Xiaomi into very powerful forces in the smartphone industry, both in their home market and increasingly elsewhere in the world, in Europe, in in sub-Saharan Africa, in Latin America, in India, and so on. So, uh, Shira, in your reporting, what did you find that... Apple's response to Android was, I can't imagine Steve Jobs was a big fan of Android and what it really meant to be oh, open source. He's like, I love it, I love it, bring it on. Exactly. No, I think it's fair to say that Steve Jobs, when he was alive, hated Android, <laughs> tried to sue the Android coalition out of existence, and really felt like, fairly or unfairly, that Android was a ripoff of um, Apple's designs. And you could see that in the way that Apple pursued litigation, not against Google, which, after all, was not making money directly from Android smartphones, but against Android proxies like Samsung and HTC and so on. And I think also Android offended Steve Jobs' sensibility, right? That Android phones are kind of... They're a little bit uncontrolled. Google just sort of let the software, this operating software, loose on the world and was like, good luck, boys. And it became this kind of hot mess of technology. And that was very against the Apple ethos of we make these beautiful technologies. We design the software and the hardware to work together in this harmonious way. And the sprawling mess of Android was very much not that. That sprawling mess, uh, one of the great little nuggets in there, as you mentioned earlier already, Shira, was the fact that this was a Google acquisition um, of Android. And when you think of a Google acquisitions and then maybe acquisitions writ large in tech, where do you where do you rank this? Boy, I mean, it's got to be one of the most important technology acquisitions of the last 20 years. And and to Google's credit, it has made a couple of other really good ones. So YouTube was a company that um, that Google also bought when it was relatively young. It's like, uh, would you rather own Android or, or YouTube? Oh, wait, we boy. own both. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's if I had to choose whether YouTube or Android was a more important acquisition, I might pick Android. And, and Android was also something that Google bought in very much the incubation phase. It was kind of this bet on the team right. uh, at Android that had a clever idea to make a software for, again, this was a company that Google acquired in 2005, so before the iPhone came out. And even then they had this idea of making a kind of open right. Windows-like software for cell phones. Wow. Um, Yep. I just got to say, okay, we're running out of time, but everybody can go to the Bloomberg or Bloomberg.com, buy the magazine and check it out because you also get into kind of who might be the leader in terms of operating systems in the future, kind of what's next. Which I think is actually the, you know, yeah. that, when she puts the little bow on it, I, <laughs> it's such a great reveal. So, Shira, it's thank you. A great read, provocative as always. Shira Overday, technology columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, on the phone from San Francisco. Joel Weber, our editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And you are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Here comes a robot with electric brains. Robot for trade. Oh, jeez. Okay. So it wasn't bad enough. Well, you know, let's start off by saying we know that Wall Street's been uh, kind of cutting back on its research really for about 15 years now. And uh, and part of it is you know, outsourcing some of the remaining research to uh, lower cost markets such as India. But they're actually taking it a step further at some places using robots. To get to the bottom of this interesting story, I can't wait to hear it, is Charlotte Ryan. 
She covers bonds and FX for Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from the UK. Charlotte, thanks so much uh, for joining us. As a former uh, sell-side research analyst, I read, I read your story with great pains because I can just see uh, more jobs going away. But give us a sense of what you found in your reporting. Yeah, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, as you say, this is just a case of the yet another industry where it looks like the robots are coming for our jobs. Um, what I found in reporting this piece was that at the moment you've kind of got this perfect storm where investors are increasingly turning to emerging markets to get that yield um, in a kind of low growth environment in developed markets. But at the same time, because we have banks slashing their headcount, um, there is a bit of a gap in the coverage of some of these markets. Um, so this is where these companies that I spoke to kind of entered post-message, um, which is obviously the European markets legislation, and said, you know, we have a product here that can do the work of thousands of normal analysts um, by kind of trawling through information and delivering insights in this very quick, easily digestible fashion to investors. Well, this is what, you know, I feel like so many industries are facing that they're getting kind of a data deluge, right? And they're trying to figure out, okay, how do I go through it? How do I make it useful? Uh, and this is an opportunity to do it where, you know, Wall Street firms, as Paul has mentioned, have been cutting back. This is an opportunity to be able to access these emerging markets, go through the data and make some investment decisions. So maybe opening up the availability of some of these markets more so to uh, investors. Yeah, and I mean, we had an example of that in the story in terms of Brazil, where you had this um, pension overhaul that was kind of on the horizon for investors for months. And at the beginning, it really wasn't clear which way that was going to go. Um, and for, you know, human analysts to keep an eye on that every single day, tracking the probability of one piece of legislation passing, it would take a lot of people and it wouldn't necessarily be the best use of their time. Whereas with an algorithm, you know, you can set it up to track comments in newspapers, on government web pages. Um, and what this company was able to do was basically predict the result um, of this vote on the pension reform almost to the letter and give their clients an edge but I do wonder. Um, but I do want to jump in for a second because I do wonder about right. It gets to the yeah, point where all the firms, like, or a bunch of investment firms, are using the same, or do they essentially kind of tap into the same algorithms? And so, does the edge, the investment edge, ultimately, Charlotte, go away at some point? Yeah, I mean that is a really good point, and it's something we've definitely seen uh, with other trading strategies in the market. I think probably what the companies would say that. Um, you know, this would just be part of your strategy as an investor and you probably would only be using it for things that are particularly data heavy. Um, but yeah, no doubt as this kind of technology becomes more widely adopted, it will lead to questions about, yeah, does the edge decrease the more people that are using it? How about, Charlotte, what do you find about the quality of this research? Is it accurate? Does it work? Yeah, so I mean, as we said in this story, we struggled a little bit um, to get one of these reports. The companies, you know, I think because this is still um, 
relatively new. They're a little bit reluctant to kind of give away their own secret sauce in terms of explaining exactly uh, what their finished product looks like. But yeah, we had feedback from a couple of clients who mm-hmm. use these services. Um, and then obviously this, yeah, a couple of quite compelling examples where investors were able to get this very accurate information, um, particularly, yeah, in the case of right. pension reform. It was off by, I think, one vote. So it was, it was very, very close to the actual result. Well, it's an interesting story, and your story does point out, though, that uh, robots will never fully replace humans. <laughs> but you know what? <laughs> we'll, we will see. Time will tell on that one. Charlotte Ryan, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. I know it's getting late there in the UK. She's Bond's FX reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone uh, from uh, the United Kingdom. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. So optimistic and yet shifting to a more conservative stance, it is time for the drive to the close. That's our thoughts of our next guest, Dryden Pence. He's economist and CEO at Pence Wealth Management, based in Newport Beach, California. Can I just stop there? Because wouldn't it be nice to be in Newport Beach? Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Right at this moment. (laughs) He joins us. He's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Nice to have you here with Paul and myself. Uh, Interesting couple of days already this week. As you know, a lot of selling yesterday. Uh, Bounce back uh, today to some extent. Um, What do you make of the environment right now? Because you are saying you're optimistic, but a little bit more conservative in terms of positioning some of your clients. Well, ha- happy to be here and happy to report that the weather in Newport Beach is great. So, <laughs> yeah, all right. but, Thanks very much. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but but um, so, yes, fundamentally, we're optimistic. What we're seeing is... What, what do you mean fundamentally, specifically? Sure. What I mean is that more people are making more money than ever before. The U.S. consumer is doing very, very well. And as they're seeing an increase in their disposable income, they're spending it. And as that money gets spent into the U.S. economy, it provides kind of a, a fundamental underpinning of demand for all the things we make and sell here in the United States. Now, how can we talk about that when I think, Paul, we've also talked about in the last couple of days the, the you know possibility of a recession, of the Fed continuing to cut rates because they're worried about not being you know proactive enough? Well, I think that, that we don't foresee a recession coming until we see a major policy change a change in the tax code, a change in something like that. So we're we've got another year and a half before we see anything like that possibly happening. So we think recessions for that. I mean, recessions aren't on a clock. They're usually, as Ben Bernanke said, that recessions don't die of old right, age. Right. They're, they're murdered. Right. So so the point of the the point of the matter is is that we don't see a recession coming uh, in the next year, year and a half. Uh, it would take a major policy change for that to occur because the the Fed is lowering rates in this case because they kind of got it wrong. When they raised it in the third quarter and fourth quarter last year, they found the point where people react to home mortgages when you when when millennials mm-hmm. or people under the age of 44 because they've never seen an interest rate. Right. When they get a home mortgage of about four percent that and get above that, you, you saw mortgage applications just drop off a cliff. 
And so the Fed kind of raised two levels above that. Everybody who had mortgages of 17% or 15% <laughs> yeah. back in the – set was it yeah. 70s? They're like, they're like just laughing. Yeah, we <laughs> thought it was cheap, right? Yeah, we, th- right? We, think was, we thought a 6% mortgage was yep. cheap. But for, for half yeah. the population, That's they think it's stratospheric. And so I think the Fed got ahead of themselves. They've got two raises that they've got to back out. Uh, and so they've done one. They'll probably have to do another. But that's not the signal of a recession. That's a signal of just finding out where people's hot button is. They found the nerve, and now they've got to get back to the point where they change it. I mean, the Fed changes interest rates to change behavior. They found the rate at which behavior changes. They've got to go back to that. So, Dryden, let's talk some names. I know a name that you have been interested in is the Walt Disney Company. Disney's reporting earnings after the close tonight, so this is great timing. Just give us your thesis about what you like about Disney because, boy, their business really is changing their, their business model. Well, the, the fundamental thing about, biz, uh, about Disney is they really own our imagination. They, they are now one-third of all, of all the you know, theatrical productions. They own the movies that we see. They own the stories that we see. And so now they're able to take a look and repurpose and reuse. It's, I mean, you're, you're looking at Aladdin for the second time. You're, you're looking at probably you know, Snow White comes out in various things. Every, every seven or eight years, they're going to roll out these themes as a new generation sees these stories. A good story is a good story is a good story. And now Disney is so dominant with fabulous characters, with you know, Marvel and Pixar, all the companies that they bought. They have those and they can exploit that for generations to come. They really have our imagination and they've captured that. And that's going to drive their earnings. So Disney gets a new CEO. Let's just play. Let's just play make-believe right now, right? Bob Iger's been there for a long time and keeps extending his contract. New CEO. Do you still feel the same about Disney? Disney's done a wonderful job over the years of promoting from within. And they have a very deep bench of executives that they that have been with that company, have that culture for a long time. So I think what will probably happen is they'll, when, when Iger retires, they'll probably take somebody from within who has been inculcated in that culture and knows the true value of Disney and can fully continue to present that to the world. Although they've lost a lot of people who were at Disney for a while, right? Well, their succession plan, Bob Staggs and, and, yeah. uh, and Jay Rosulo and right. things like that. So, Well, right. When, when, when Iger began to extend, you had people that were waiting that went, okay, I just don't want to wait anymore. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they still don't have a deep bench. You know, they, they've, they've done a good job for, for many, many years developing a deep bench of talent. Uh, they know how to do talent, both in management and in creative. And you feel good about uh, their acquisition of uh, 21st Century Fox. That was such a big deal, $70 billion. Boy, you kind of hope there's – so there's probably a lot of execution risk there. They have some execution risk, but if you take a look at, at their previous acquisitions, you know, if you take a look at the money that they spent for Marvel, the money that they spent on Pixar, they've been able to do fabulous things with that and get a fabulous return very quickly. So the 20th First Century Fox acquisition gives them both past and future uh, library to work with and things that I, I think it's I think it's great. And their ESPN exposure, you still feel okay about that? I think the story's over there. Okay. I, I mean, people are. I mean, we're kind of numb to ESPN at this point. I mean, they, they, for a while it was a big news thing. They're going to over time have to work through that. But I think that that gets kind of swamped and drowned out by the idea of we're moving to streaming. They have the assets that they need to do that. They're going to bifurcate the Hulu and the Disney Plus, so they're going to capture all of our uh, all of our time. John, I want to ask you about Amazon because the stock's uh, down about eleven, almost twelve percent since its uh, mid-July high. Have you been buying into that name on the pullback? 
Amazon is pretty much always on our buy list in terms of as, as so I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> as, 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 uh, as new money comes in, yes, it's being put to work. Uh, and, and Amazon is a stock that we're continuing to buy. Why? Why? Again, it is so dominant in the thing we do the most of. Uh, it, in e-tailing, in e-commerce, it, Amazon is so dominant. And they're continuing to reinvest in basically being such an essential part of the everyday life of a consumer, being able to get something to deliver very quickly, uh, and they get it, it becomes a, almost an appendage of your life. And they're continuing to do that. They're going to continue to do that. I think they're going to be part of the ecosystem, and we're going to be part of their ecosystem for a very long time. <sighs> that's a, that's Those a, Amazon boxes will continue coming in. They will, absolutely. <laughs> On the hour. On the hour, I know. <laughs> Dryden, thank you so much. Nice to check in with you again. Absolutely. Enjoy, Thanks for being here. Enjoy the rest of your summer. Jordan Pence, he's economist and chief executive officer at Pence Wealth Management, based in the lovely Newport Beach, California, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Tuesday. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.